The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. Hope you have a Bible. I hope you would look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, although we'll be focusing on the later part of the context. Ephesians 4, verse 11. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should be no longer children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. The preaching of the word today. We will see today, or I will try to put forth the proposition that your task as a pastor in days to come is to develop mature believers. That's your task. Rarely is that ever said to seminarians or beginning pastors. We're going to see that in some depth in our sermon text. And let me preface by just tossing this in. Uh, This is is, uh, my passion you cannot grow mature Christians with immature worship. And so your worship must be intentionally weighty. It must be worship for grown-ups. I had uh, pretty recently a, a pulpit committee come knocking on my door, and I gave him my list of 16 non-negotiables, which is, is pretty funny, and you ought to look at it sometime. But one of their big things was, uh, and by the way, we do a children's sermon in the middle of our worship service. I said, that's a deal breaker. And they said, well, this is really a big deal because it's really cute and it's funny. And, and we've, we've been doing this for 40 or 50 years. And I said, you know, my sense is, is that American evangelicals are childish enough without just bringing that into worship. And so, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in taking a call to a church that makes that a centerpiece of their Lord's Day. And so my, my contention is, and this has nothing to do with this passage, is that our worship cannot be silly. You can't grow people up with foolishness in worship. Our worship must be weighty, loaded with scripture from the call to worship to the benediction as we confess our sins and sing majestic psalms and hymns and hear the word preached. We recognize that historic reformed worship is designed to mature you and assist you to grow up. Well, I want you to look at Ephesians 4 with me. The Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, you know this from New Testament survey, probably the second or third day, that uh, Ephesians is is the simplest New Testament book to outline because it's a two-point outline. The chapters one through three are the indicative section where Paul speaks of what the triune God has done for believers. And then Paul takes a hard right turn takes a 180, and he shifts gears in chapters 4 through 6 to the imperative section, where Paul spends the next three chapters carefully telling believers 
what they must do in response to the gracious work of God in their lives. And in Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12, where we began our reading a moment ago, we're told that Christ, as the head of the church, has given gifts to all believers. And specifically, Christ has given the gifts of evangelist, meaning a church planter, or pastor teacher to some men. And then the transition into verse 13, what will result if pastor teachers do their job? Here it is, very simple premise maturity. That's what will result. For centuries, there was a consensus among Protestants, really from the time of the Reformation until the late 1800s, that maturity was a desirable thing. There's pretty common agreement between Anglicans and Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans. But now, the evangelical culture revels and glorifies in immaturity, in permanent immaturity. Now, obviously, babies have to learn to do things like walk and talk and engage in self-discipline, but no one thinks it's a good idea to stay in immaturity, or do they? Thomas Burgler, the American scholar who, who really focuses on one issue in all his books, on the juvenilization, that's a word, juvenilization, of American evangelicalism, he gives all kinds of reports about how often he speaks to church groups and even seminaries and speaks about maturity. And when he does and advances the the premise that the goal of the Christian life is to grow into maturity, into the likeness of Christ, that as soon as he says that, even church leaders start backpedaling and saying things like, well, I don't think anyone ever arrives in the spiritual life, or we're not supposed to judge one another if others aren't growing, or no one is perfect, or you can't be holy in this life. Why don't you notice about our text? Look carefully at it in Ephesians 4. One of the things that Paul emphasizes, and I'm really not even going to stress this today, is the concept of corporate maturity, because there's something else going on here besides the necessity for the believer to grow. It's that there's a necessity for the whole congregation to grow. Notice the the use of the plural terms in verse 13. We, when Paul says this, says, till we all come to the unity of the faith. In verse 14, that we should no longer be children. In verse 16, Paul says, from whom the whole body. And so one of the things that Paul is emphasizing is the idea of maturity is not just for a few super saints. No that you as a pastor, and I hope the Holy Spirit brings these words to your remembrance 10, 15 years from now, that they'll haunt you if you're, if you're saying, well, I'm just going to concentrate on these five or 10 folks who are interested in growth. Absolutely not. We may never rest content until we are bringing everyone along. That's the ministerial task. Think of some of the branches of the special forces in the military whose creeds always include no man left behind. And that should be the pastor's creed as well. No member left behind. Now, if secular institutions like the military understand the necessity of this, how much more should the church get this? We are called by this text, and this is the principal text to do this. We're called to set aside our individualism and look out for one another's sanctification. In fact, individualism is a mark of immaturity. 
you know someone, including the pastor, is still profoundly immature if they are unconcerned about the sanctification of others. They're a relational child, a misfit, and we'll see that in our text today. Now, before we get to maturity, we have to look at immaturity. Look at verse 14. There's a couple, uh, a couple descriptors of what makes up spiritual immaturity. Paul says, we should no longer be children. Now, let it be clearly understood. Paul is saying immaturity in the Christian life is not a good thing. Paul's saying that. That's pretty flat and pretty blunt. Now, it's inevitable when people are first converted. But if that state or condition continues, there's an awful problem. Something has gone horribly wrong. Paul says that in, in verse 14, just says it very directly. We should no longer be children. If that's all the apostle Paul said, then we might be left to fill in the blanks or to guess what he meant. But thankfully, he supplies two of the leading characteristics of spiritual immaturity. Look at them there in the text. The first is the spiritually immature are always doctrinally unsure. He says of them in verse 14, they are tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's the first mark of the immature. They're unstable. They're wobbly. They're imbalanced. They're like a child who's taking his first steps and keeps falling and running into things. They're so unsteady, they can be easily knocked over. There's hardly any truth on which they're certain and can stand firm upon. Think of the church at Corinth, for example. This is the church that can't even stand firmly on the resurrection. They can't stand firmly on sexual immorality. They don't even know if incest is a good thing or a bad thing. Why? Because they were immature. They were easily distracted from the important and taken in by the superficial. They gravitated towards the faddish and the novel and the flashy. They seem to have no capacity to think long-term, but they live for the moment and the feeling. They would give their time and their money to heretics and see no problem with that. When Paul says, look at verse 14, that they are tossed to and fro. If you've been paying attention to Dr. Dyer's Greek class, you know that term swung around is what is what that term means. When it says tossed to and fro, they're swung around. It was used in classical Greeks of spinning tops and feeling dizzy, such as the confusion of the person who will not do the work of growing in even the most basic of doctrinal understanding. That's why, by the way, the catechizing of children is so important. We want even our youngest children to be sure of biblical doctrine. And if you gave me a day, the rest of the day, I wouldn't even be halfway through the false doctrines that immature believers have asked me about. These are just questions because I've been charting them for the last five weeks, just questions that immature believers have asked me about. Don't all religions really have the same values? Won't all good people go to heaven if they're really sincere? Don't other religious books such as the Quran and the Bhagavad Gita and the Book of Mormon have some validity? These are people who are communing members of Christian churches. Well, the second aspect of spiritual immaturity is not just doctrinal unsureness, but look again at verse 14. It's also gullibility. We're told of them in verse 14 that they fall for the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. 
Immature Christians are easy prey because they can't ever seem to distinguish between the false and the true. They haven't learned to recognize orthodox doctrine. That word in verse 14 that's translated in our English translations, cunning, is the Greek word used for cheating at dice. And so what we see here is error is planned. Look at what we're told. It's deceitfully plotted. Error is planned, usually for financial gain from the pockets of the immature believer. And the immature person repeatedly falls for the tricks of schemers. The immature person, and this may be the saddest aspect of immaturity, they have no discernment. They think the speculative is weighty, but they place little value on what actually is revealed in Scripture. Just like children, they're moved primarily by emotional appeals and can be manipulated and act hastily. For five years, and I really do need to write a book before I forget it all, but for five years, we pastored in Las Vegas from 1995 to 2000, and we have so many stories. But we had new believers who would come and ask about everything from repressed memory syndrome to crystals to yoga meditation to psychic healing to vegetarianism to dream interpretation, and that was just before the morning service. And I was always glad to to use these questions to help them mature and learn discernment. Always was glad with brand new believers to sort of straighten them out. But what always deeply troubles me is not when a brand new believer or somebody grappling with the gospel has those kind of questions. What troubles me the most, what wakes me up at three in the morning, what grieves me, what causes me to pray, is people who've been confessing believers for decades and can't make the most elementary distinctions. That's what troubles me. I think of the woman who was in her 60s and had been in Reformed churches all her life who came to me in 2010, and she was excited about the movie Heaven is for Real. And then in 2015, she came back to me again because she wanted me to go with her and her husband to go see 90 Minutes in Heaven. And these, these, the people who are fascinated by this sort of thing are immature at best because these claims are, are fantasies, deliberate lies, and delusions, and they prey upon the gullible. By the way, what I told her in 2010 was what I told her in 2015 was what I told her about two months ago. I said, we know with absolute certainty because Scripture says that people do not die, go to heaven, and then come back. Because Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed under men once to die. Jesus says in John 3, no one has ascended into heaven and descended again. All of these things that you're so fascinated by are a lie. And notice, in each case, you've had to pay to be lied to. And the lady said, well, I, I just like to think about these things. I said, think about them. Great. In, in what Scripture reveals. Those are the people who should trouble you are the people who've been confessing members of your churches, and they're still gullible, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And the people who kept falling for these things had one thing in common. They didn't consistently place themselves under the written word to be taught. They seemed to listen to anyone but God's ordained men, finding that that's too commonplace, non-spectacular, not flashy enough. And so I, I, I'm going to quote you, the mantra that I send to folks like this, it's saved on my computer. I always send it when people send me an email and they are falling for wacky stuff. I will send this at the bottom of this and say, 
If you want a mantra, here's a mantra. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its history is true, its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. Because my, my goal always is to push people like this back to the Bible and the sufficiency of the Scripture alone. Well, enough about immaturity, because this text is primarily about maturity. That's what Paul wants to focus on, especially in verses 13 through 16. His premise is this, and you may even want to come up and take issue with me when I state this is the premise. Perhaps you've bought into the juvenilization of the church. Paul's premise is simple. Every Christian should reach spiritual maturity, period. Simple premise. Think of what other New Testament texts say. Texts like Hebrews 5 verse 12 you should be teachers by now. They uh, say there's a reasonable, reasonable period of growth, and then there should be maturity. Those who don't reach maturity are abnormal, like babies who never progress from drinking milk to eating solid food. Those who never progress to maturity are in spiritual danger, just like a tree that produces no fruit, and Jesus says, cut it down. Those who are spiritually mature they know the basic content of their faith. Let's agree. How can a person make the claim to maturity if they've not at least read the entire Bible? I know people who will fall on their sword for inerrancy and the authority of the Bible that haven't even read it all. How can a person be spiritually mature if, they, if they're not comfortable with the central doctrines of the Bible? A good place would be the 33 doctrines of our confession of faith. A mature believer knows their spiritual gifts, and they consistently use them to serve the body. A mature believer recognizes that the call to Jesus includes an easy yoke and a light burden and taking up their cross daily. A mature believer is known for their, their evident production and harvest of fruit, those nine character traits listed in Galatians 5. But what I want to do now, I want to dive into this text, and I want to show you the mind of Paul Paul shows us at least seven traits of Christian maturity, and you could spend seven weeks in a Bible study on each of these, a week on each of these, and I'll just barely touch them now. But Paul doesn't just say people should be mature. He gives you seven traits of maturity. Look at them with me in the text. The first is in verse 13, he talks about the necessity of holding to the unity of the faith. That's a mark of the mature believer. Unlike the immature person, the mature Christian is not doctrinally unsure. They hold no aberrant doctrines. They cling tightly to those great confessional assertions of Protestantism. They would take a bullet for the five solas. They firmly live by and understand the faith that has been delivered once to the saints. We read about in Jude 1. The unity of the faith, by the way, if you want to know, get a, a, a peek into Paul's way of thinking. If you look just above this in the context, in verses 4 through 6, Paul speaks of the sevenfold unity that every believer has. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, one spirit, one hope, and one God and Father. And so the first 
the first thing that makes a believer, first trait of maturity is they hold to the unity of the faith, those great doctrines and practices that all Christians everywhere have held to for 2,000 years. The second trait of maturity is knowledge. Look at verse 13. Paul says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, it's a specific type of knowledge. It's not just esoteric knowledge. Notice what it is. It's the knowledge of the Son of God. This means that maturity is is deeply tied to Christological knowledge. This means there will be a steady growth in knowledge of Christ's person his deity and his perfect humanity, knowledge of Christ's work, a clear grasp of his teaching. This involves a careful study of each one of his words and discourses, a good understanding of his public ministry, including his miraculous works, his works of active obedience, perfectly obeying the law to earn his people a righteousness, his works of passive obedience, dying on the cross, bearing our penalty, thus securing our redemption and reconciliation. His present work of intercession and preparing us a place. His future work of return and judgment. His humiliation and exaltation is three offices of prophet, priest, and king. And so one of the marks of the mature believer, look at it there in verse 13. They have a settled, rich, base of knowledge of the Son of God. I, I can't tell you how often I've been talking to people in evangelistic context, and I'll say, Tell me what you think of Jesus Christ. Oh, I love Jesus Christ. I I just don't know what I'd do without him. Great. Tell me about it. Who is he? Oh, oh, you know who he is. I do. Tell me what you know of who he is. Oh, I, I don't really know. I just love him. Well, you'll hear that a lot in the American South where there's, there's no knowledge. Look at what one of the traits is of the mature. Stare at that in verse 13. This is a this is a hardcore trait of the mature and maturing believer, concrete knowledge of the Son of God. A third trait is balance, profound balance as opposed to imbalance. Look at it there in verse 15. This is the man who knows how to speak the truth in love. This takes daily balance. One of the things I pray for every morning over breakfast before I speak to another person is the balance to guard my tongue and speak the truth in love. The mature man knows what truth is and he knows what love is. You know a man is immature when he has a tiny little piece of truth about the size of a grenade and he goes around blowing everything up unlovingly. And they're they're not just, the mature man is not just all truth spoken harshly all the time. No, the mature man, And let me tell you right now, seminarians, you know this, you hear this all the time, seminarians are legendary for being all truth, no love. I I was the president of that club when I was in seminary. But the, the mature man, just ask all of my classmates, but the mature man carefully weighs how to speak the truth. He carefully weighs it in such a way that it will be received. He wants truth to be received, not just stated. He knows that how you say something is just about as weighty as as what you say. And so the mature man guards against temperamental speaking, harshness, but he puts on graciousness, gentleness, nor is the mature man all loving but unwilling to speak the truth. 
The mature believer is called to hold two things together. Look at it here in verse 15. Two things together, truth and love. But let me say quickly, this is not so difficult for the believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And the first fruit he produces is love. And so you can tell a man is, is filled with the Spirit if he can pass this one simple test. Does he speak the truth in love? A fourth trait of maturity is Christ-likeness. Look at verse 13, where Paul speaks of, of until we come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Notice what he says the measuring stick is for the mature believer. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Maturity is nothing less than being progressively conformed to the image of Christ. Think of how many New Testament imperatives there are to imitate Christ, to intentionally wake up every day and follow hard after Him. We're told in Philippians 2 to to imitate Christ in His humility. We're told to have this mind in you which was in Christ. Or in His servanthood, when Jesus said to His disciples, you ought to wash one another's feet as you've seen me do. Or in His self-giving love, where Paul will just, we're just about there in Ephesians 5 too, where Paul will say, walk in love as Christ has loved us. So one of the marks of the mature is he is, he is laboring to put on the life of Christ, to imitate Him. A fifth trait of the mature is he is always growing. He's not stalled out, but he progresses and develops. The mature man does not stop using the means of grace. The maturing man loves worship. It doesn't matter if he's 20 or 80. He loves worship on the Lord's Day. He loves the prayer meetings of the church. One of the things, and this is my 35th year of pastoral ministry, so I've had an awful lot of time to, to watch and carefully consider this. One of the most frightening trends, and you'll see it, you'll see it in pastoral ministry, is people who, they're super involved in the life of the church while they have kids. And when that last child goes off to college, my wife has a sociological term for it. She calls it spiritual retirement. You'll see people begin to drift away from the church. They hit 50. They don't serve. They don't use their gifts. They drift away from the prayer meeting. First thing you notice is you don't see them on Sunday nights. And they go into spiritual retirement. The mature man doesn't think in this way. He doesn't say, oh, just one more year, and then we can buy our RV and we can disappear and be unfaithful in the life of the church. The mature man doesn't say, oh, I, I used to do those things. I, I used to be faithful in the Lord's Day Worship, I used to be faithful in the prayer meetings of the church. I used to use my gifts, but, you know, my kids are grown and gone, and, and so uh, I'm sort of retired now. Now, the mature man would agree with Paul in Philippians 3. Listen to these words. These are the words of a mature believer. Paul says, not that I've already attained it or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. And Paul concludes that section by saying, therefore, let us as many as are mature, have this mind. 
Paul says, you can always tell the difference between the mature and the immature because the immature, he falls in the ditch to the side. He doesn't persevere. He doesn't keep pressing on. The mark of the mature is they are always ready to learn, always ready to use the ordinary means of grace, always ready to serve till their deathbed. A couple of Saturdays ago, we had a delightful time at Woodruff Road. Our oldest member, in fact, the oldest member in the history of Woodruff Road, it was her 100th birthday, Berlene Murphy. And she is an astounding woman of God. She's a, she's a dear saint. I've been trying to help her get over being OPC for the last 22 years. She, she was a card-carrying member of an OPC church in the D.C. area, but she's been at Woodruff Road for at least the last 22 years. And on a periodic basis, she'll very humbly say, oh, Carl, here's how we used to do it in the OPC. And that's meant to be a mild correction for me, I think, is what that is. But she is a saint. She's a godly woman. And as I went to the birthday party we had at the church building to celebrate with her, and she leaned over and, and uh, she said, Carl, here's how I'm praying for you. Here's what I'm studying in the word. And she wanted to talk about her devotional life with Christ. I thought, okay, this is somebody who's not just chronologically mature, but this is somebody who's spiritually mature. They cannot, will not let go of the word and prayer. Well, a sixth trait of the mature. Look at verse 13. They have a deep concern for corporate life. Look at what Paul says. He says, here's what my concern is, until we all come to the unity of the faith. Do you hear that? What a pastor's heart. He's concerned for the maturity of every one of the members of the church at Ephesus, this church he planted, till we all come. Paul's horrified at the thought of having people in the church who do not understand justification by faith alone or the substitutionary atonement of Jesus or Christian ethics. Paul is saying, here's my ministry plan to bring everybody along. I had this discussion not too long ago when somebody said, Carl, what, what's the discipleship model at Wood Road? I said, to present every man mature in Christ. There you go. That's the plan. That's why it's vital for you that when you step into a pulpit, when you pastor a church, it's vital for you to urge your congregation to faithfully put themselves under the ministry of the word morning and evening because they need to grow up with the rest of the body. This is why all the over 30 of them in the New Testament, all the one anothering phrases are so important love one another, serve one another, admonish one another, bear one another's burdens, pray for one another, and so on. It's because we are meant to grow up together as we engage in intentional one anothering. And to strengthen this understanding of corporate life, look what Paul says in verse 16 at the close of this context. He says, this happens as the whole body is joined and knit together. Let me tell you a good practice for you to make this coming Sunday. I know it's early in the week and you got five days to forget this. Let me encourage you to make this the practice on Sunday. When you see that person sitting off in the corner who ducks in right after the call to worship and ducks out just before the benediction, go and grab that person. Go and say, brother, I, I, I haven't ever really gotten to talk to you because you kind of scoot out and scoot in and scoot out pretty quick. I'd like to talk to you. I want to fellowship with you. I need to know you. We're knit together in the same body. How can I encourage you to grow into maturity in Christ? The seventh trait. Look at verse 16. The seventh trait of the mature is they use their spiritual gifts in service to others in the body. Notice what Paul speaks about. He talks about 
using what every joint supplies. And he talks about the effective working by which every part does its share. For those who aren't using their gifts, serving the body, several things can be said. First of all, they're immature. If you have a member in your church, just one. If you had a 100-member church and you had 99 people who were all furiously using their gifts, but you had one who wasn't, you're limping along because you need that person's gifts. And I've used this as a pastoral appeal to people who are sort of peripheral. I said, brother, you're robbing me. I need your gifts. I need your gifts of encouragement and service and mercy and administration and all of those things. I need you. And as you don't use your gifts, we limp along and we are immature. You can say more about this person who's not using their gifts. Not only are they immature, they're freeloaders. That's an old term. It's a 1930s American term, meaning they're living off the gifts of the mature in the body, but never using their own. You know how this works in a family. The immature members really don't contribute anything. We used to say this to our children when they were small and we were teaching economics 101. We would say, you guys aren't producers yet, just consumers. And the house is divided between producers. Those are the people who do something to benefit the family. And consumers, those are the people who just drink a lot of milk. Well, then as they grow, then as they grow, your children hopefully begin to contribute. Maybe in small ways they contribute. They make a bed. They bring a diaper to their mom. They carry groceries from the car. And then as they mature more, they do things like cut the grass and babysit and run errands and paint a room. But if they hit about 10 or 11 and they're not doing anything and they're just consuming, you've got a big problem on your hands. You've officially raised a freeloader. Yet many in the Christian life are this way. To use the old term of the Puritans, they are sermon tasters. They're just consumers, but they never serve the body. How do we apply this word to you? Let me make a few applications from this text to you. The first is this text, I hope you'll see, is not unique. It's not an odd text. It fits in with the whole weight of the New Testament because the rest of the New Testament as well is maturity-focused. Think, for example, what Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, Brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you're not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able. And he says this is a rebuke. He says, you're immature, and so I need to rebuke you about your immaturity. Or think about it in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul keeps it up. He keeps his foot on the gas. He says, Brethren, do not be children in your understanding, but in understanding, be mature. And so it's not just here that Paul is saying this. Or think about the parable of the sower that our Lord tells in Luke chapter 8. And one of the things that he states about three of the four types of seed that's sown, he says over and over again, it brings no fruit to maturity. It brings no fruit to maturity. Only one of the four types of seeds comes to maturity, or the most blistering of the indictments about immaturity. When the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5, and by the way, this is where a lot of old New Testament scholarship used to say, um, this has to be Paul writing this, because nobody, and I'm not arguing for the Pauline authorship of Hebrews, but there are plenty of scholars, especially in the 19th century, who would say, nobody has such a burden for maturity as Paul to say these words. By this time, you ought to be teachers. Everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. 
but solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Well, obviously what, what you should press in a pastoral way, gently, but speaking the truth in love, is you should press upon your members and say, friend, what I want to move you towards is the maturity that is everywhere spoken of in the New Testament. That's my goal in pastoring you. A second application is what do we do with immature Christians right now? Let me tell you where we begin and where very few people do begin, but where you should begin, is we pray for their growth. I will tell you, if you come to Woodruff you know this, Dr. Morales and Ruben and others know this. You would have no reason to know this if you didn't worship at Woodruff but at our prayer meeting on a regular basis, I remind folks that when you read the prayers of the New Testament, you never hear Paul praying for Aunt Sarah's big toe. You never hear him praying for travel mercies. We have forgotten how to pray like the scriptures teach. One of the most helpful books you can do, because you'll be leading prayer meetings, you know that, right? For the next 40 years, is to get D.A. Carson's little book on the prayers of Paul, and Carson just hammers you about every fifth page saying, look how the New Testament models prayer. We've lost it. We've lost it because we are, are praying for the silly and the trivial and not the weighty. Well, guess what? One of the things that Paul repeatedly prays for, he prays for the maturity of believers. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 1 at the beginning of this letter. Paul says, I make mention of you in my prayers that the Father of glory may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And he goes on and tells how he's praying, and it all adds up to this sum. Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus, I'm praying for your maturity. When was the last time in a prayer meeting on Wednesday night or anywhere else where somebody stood up and said, I've got a prayer request. I'm struggling with maturity and with growth. Would you all pray for me? I'm stuck in immaturity. And I think a lot of other people in this congregation are as well. When was the last time you heard somebody pray that? But that's a major burden of the New Testament. Listen to how Paul prays when he writes to the church in Colossae. He doesn't pray for anybody's health. He doesn't pray for himself to get out of prison. But here's what Paul prays. We do not cease to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. In other words, their maturity. Brothers, we must learn how to pray the deep concerns of the New Testament and put off the prayer concerns of folk religion and cultural Christianity. Another application is I have to say this to you, but we as Calvinists, we are people who believe in the use of means. We don't just say, well, the Lord, we're Calvinists and therefore the Lord will save my next door neighbor if and when he is pleased to do so. We say, no, the Lord is sovereign, and he's sovereignly ordained that I'm going to go next door and talk to my next door neighbor about the state of his soul. Maturity will not happen unless you use the means to strive after it. Maturity is intellectual, so that means that we'll be buying the books, putting ourselves under teaching, growth in knowledge, maturity in doctrine, that, that we will be pressing not only ourselves, but others in the body to seek deep understanding of the Bible system of doctrine. We'll constantly be teaching on the Trinity, the person and work of Christ, the complex of salvation, regeneration, justification, adoption, and sanctification. Maturity means a familiarity with the whole Bible. 
that we'll constantly be teaching it so that our people can understand it. We'll know the outline and structure of each of the 66 books. We'll know the meta narrative of the Bible from decree to creation, to fall, to redemption, to the already, not yet, to consummation. And the Bible's view of maturity is not just intellectual, it's also emotional. I know people who profess Christ for 30 years, but they fall into a puddle at the first trial or stress. They have no self-control over their, their tongue or their anger. They're like three-year-olds. Maturity is not just intellectual maturity. It includes emotional maturity. Putting off any and all vestiges of immature responses and outbursts. And there's another aspect to maturity. You have to use the means. It's also relational. I know men who are 60 years old, absolutely incompetent at relationships, and when I address them at this, they'll say, that's just who I am. Instead of saying, I need to get busy learning how to function and grow up to know how to function as a friend, a dad, a husband, and a member of the body. That too is part of maturity, growing in relational skill. And another aspect of maturity is maturity and discernment. Putting off all weird ideas. There were several years ago, there's a student from here who is an intern at another one of our churches. And he started drifting into some odd views. The pastor had him as an intern and the pastor called me up and said, what should I do? I said, fire him yesterday. He said, really? I said, fire him. That his, 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 his default setting is to drift towards the weird. He desperately needs a wake up call. He is incredibly immature because in, in the presence of having godly scholars to learn under, what he would rather do is drift towards the tangential and the weird. Fire him and deliver your congregation from him now. And they did. They didn't do it yesterday. They did it. They took a few months. They were a lot kinder than I would have been. But part of maturity is maturity in discernment. That you should be, right now is a great time to be saying, I'm putting off all weird conspiracy theories, all bad eschatology. If you need to know what bad eschatology is, come and I'll tell you what it is. Of all views of continuing revelation, all faddish ideas, putting all of that off. And then a final element that you have to use the means to grow in maturity is maturity in conscience. One of your goals should be, I'm intending to leave seminary not as a weaker brother, but a stronger brother. I cannot tell you as a pastor how many times somebody will come to me and they've taken offense and I'll listen to them. And I'll try to very gently put my arm around them and say, Friend, these are the concerns of a weaker brother. Now, New Testament certainly teaches of weaker brothers, but no license is given for men to stay as weaker brothers. The goal of weaker brothers is to mature and become stronger brothers. And so let me encourage you to use the means to grow in the maturity intellectually, emotionally, relationally, in discernment, and in conscience as well. Finally, and this is super practical application. We're finishing up a, a round right now of elder and deacon training, men who have been nominated for office. And it's one of the favorite things I do. We do about 20 weeks of, of a training class, and I really enjoy it. You really get to know these guys well. And this is, I think, the 19th series of this that I've done in pastoral ministry. 19 different times have done, gone through a course of, of training for men. And I will tell you, as somebody who's done this, 
do not lay hands on immature men as elders and deacons. You and the whole church will suffer for it. Do not lay hands, do not ordain men to holy office if they are immature, just as you would not have your 11-year-old child making financial decisions for your family. Do not put men who are doctrinally unsteady, restless, emotionally unstable, given to fads, weaker brothers. Do not put them over the church of Jesus Christ. Choose men who are fixed, unmovable, stronger brothers, proven and mature. Let's pray together. Our Father, we repent of our contentment with our own immaturity and our own individualism. We ask that even by this word, the Holy Spirit would give us zeal to grow and to assist others to grow to maturity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.